So um, I thought I'd start with a bit of a story from my childhood, if that's okay. And it's from a time when we went to a kind of zoo safari park hybrid. And it's one of those where the first part of it, you go round in your car, around these massive enclosures where the animals are just walking about. And we were in the lion enclosure, and we got to see across the enclosure, someone had opened a window and a dog had got out into the uh, park. At which point we're all treated to this fantastic game of who's going to catch the dog first, the lions or the uh, park keepers in their jeeps. Now, the zookeepers, they fortunately got there first, but it did get me thinking. I was thinking, uh, being the pretty ungracious 12-year-old I was, like, even if you're daft enough not to realise that keeping the windows and doors closed is essential when you're in a lion enclosure, even if you didn't think that's a good idea, how did they miss the warnings? How did they miss the warnings? You see, as you drove in, there was huge signs in loads of different languages saying, keep the windows and doors closed. As you drove around the park, there were loads of signs saying, keep the windows and doors closed. The guidebook, bold writing, keep the windows and doors closed. And it, it just struck me as odd that they didn't see the warnings. Because not just in that case, but in all situations, in all areas of our life, the more serious the warning, the more it is repeated. The more serious the consequences of the warning, in this case being eaten by a lion, the more the warning is repeated. And I start with this because actually that's what we're looking at today. This idea of a really serious warning that is repeated time after time. Because the consequences of not heeding this warning are huge. Now this warning, it comes from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a letter in the Bible. And we don't know who wrote it, but we do know that it was written to a bunch of Christians from a Jewish background. And these guys, these guys were getting uh, persecuted because of their faith. And they were tempted to give up on Jesus. And so the writer, whoever he was, to uh, the Hebrew church, he wrote to them saying, guys, don't give up. He wrote to them, and the whole letter really is basically talking about how uh, supreme Jesus is. How through Jesus and Jesus alone we can have a relationship with God. And interspersed between that are these warnings not to give up on Jesus. Now, you and I might not be from a Jewish background, and probably our situation, our context, centuries later, is probably going to be very different. But the thing is, the truths in Hebrews remain the same. It's still only through Jesus through his death and resurrection, and us trusting in that, that we can have a relationship with God. And if the truths are the same, that means that the warning is just as important for us as it is for the original readers. And we need to make sure that we listen to this just as much as the original readers did. So we're going to have a look at it, and uh, Johnny is going to read it for us. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Hebrews 3. Why don't we welcome uh, Johnny up? So yeah, the reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. 
So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in rebellion, during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may have, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Great. Shall we uh, pray together? Oh, Father God, thank you that your word is unchanging and it truth is absolutely amazing. And I do pray for us today that we would all just be touched by your word. Would we uh, just really have uh, open ears, open hearts to hear what you are saying to us. And I pray that as we look at this passage, that we would really hear this warning and that it would bring us closer to you. For your glory. Amen. Great. Well, there are three questions which I would like us to look at in light of this question about this warning. Question number one will be, actually, what is this warning? Then secondly, why do we have this warning? Or to put it another way, what are the consequences of not listening to it? And then thirdly, how do we do the, or not do rather, the things that we're warned against doing? That's where we're going to go today. We're going to look at each of those three questions uh, in turn. Starting with, what is the warning? Now, I'm sure we all spotted it. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And, and this warning is so important that it's repeated in verses 7 and 15. This is clearly a big deal, something that we really need to take heed of. Well, what does it actually mean? Well, it's not talking about a literal hardening of hearts. Uh, my medical knowledge is pretty sketchy, but even I know that if our heart was solid, we'd be dead. Okay? So it's not a literal hardening we're looking at, but a metaphorical one. Perhaps if we look kind of at the original Greek, we get a bit more of an understanding of what it's saying. So the Greek word for heart used here is cardia. Now this encompasses a whole host of different ideas which are all to do with the essence of self, as uh, to do with who we are. So it encompasses things such as our will or our emotions or our desires. And the Greek word used for hardening, glareno, means to make hard or to make stubborn against something. So what we've got here is a warning that we are to make sure with who we are 
both our kind of uh, intellect and our uh, intent, but also our emotions and desires, that all of that need to be not set against God, but for him. In other words, our intent and our longing need to be for God rather than against him. And, and this is both kind of an intellectual focusing on God, but also uh, it's an emotional response towards him as well. Uh, and we see from this warning that actually this is something we have control over. It's something that we're able to deal with. It's something that we get to choose. We choose whether we're able to harden our heart. It's in our sphere of influence. We're told not to harden our hearts. So the warning here is to keep our desires and focus for God rather than against him. And as we look at the second question as to why we're giving this warning, we are going to look at an example from the Israelites' past, and we're going to see in a little bit more detail of what that looked like in practice. So secondly, why are we given this warning? What is the danger of us hardening our hearts? Well, to help illustrate this, Hebrews 3, verses uh, 7 to 11, quote Psalm 95. Uh, and both the Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3, they're both referencing an event that happened back in the Exodus, back when God rescued his people from Israel. And they're using that example to explain to us why it's a bad idea, why it's dangerous for us to harden our hearts. Now it might seem a little bit of a weird thing to do, to, to reference an example hundreds of years ago, but it's not too dissimilar to what we do today to kind of explain why things are a bad idea and to help us understand the consequences of what we do. We do that in today's society as well, where we use stories and histories and life events to explain why we shouldn't do things. Uh, one example from the Warner household is called the Dawn Mist episode. Now, now, now it seems that I'm not the only Warner who has uh, problems with DIY. And uh, the, the story goes that there was one uh, unnamed male Warner who was uh, decorating the living room. Now, he and his wife, uh, they uh, looked through the paint catalogue and selected a paint, Dawn Mist. And so the guy uh, goes, gets in the car, and he drives off to the paint door, which is a fair way away, and comes home with the paint. Proudly showing it to his wife, she points out that's autumn mist, not dawn mist. At which point the red mist descends, and he is really annoyed. He storms back to the car, puts the paint in, drives right back to the paint door, comes back, changes the paint, boom, gets back, comes back to his wife, and guess what? He's managed to swap the autumn mist for autumn mist. <laughs> Two and a half hours later, they're still no closer to painting the front room. And this story is often told in the Warner household. And especially when we were kids, my mum would use that example on us whenever we were getting a little bit angry. She'd be like, remember the dawn mist. And the point of it was... Don't make rash actions when you're angry. Don't make decisions in anger because you actually make really bad calls. And, and we were able to get that. We got the historical implication and we were like, okay, we've learned we don't make rash decisions in anger. 
And it's a little bit like that, but obviously with a much, much more serious consequence. That's what we see in the uh, Hebrews and Psalm passages. They're showing us, don't harden your hearts. Remember what happened to the Israelites when they did that. Remember what happened when they did that in Meribah. And the Hebrew passage then goes on to explain the consequences of the Israelites hardening their hearts in that example. So we need to take a look at it. Uh, The story can be found in Exodus 17. And it happens very soon after God has rescued his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. It happened just after God had saved his people through parting the Red Sea, allowing the Israelites to escape Egypt, and then closing the Red Sea to defeat the pursuing Egyptian army. And after that, all the Israelites had to do was cross this desert to the land that God had promised them. Thing is, though, the, the Israelites uh, they start getting pretty grumpy. And there's not much water about, so they start grumbling and complaining to Moses, the leader, saying that God has abandoned them and that they're going to die of thirst. And when Moses brings this to God, uh, God tells Moses to get some of the elders of Israel as witnesses, go to this rock at Horeb, and to strike it with his staff. And when Moses does this, water starts jetting out from the rock, and the Israelites have enough water. They're not going to die of thirst. Now, it sounds a nice story, but actually, uh, both Exodus 17 and Psalm 95, as well as the Hebrew passage, they all say that this incident is the Israelite testing God. Now, there are two elements to testing God. Firstly, it's doubting God's goodness and power. And secondly, it's challenging the idea that God is good, challenging God as to whether he's good. It's not relying on him, but rather saying, God, you say you're good? Well, you've got to prove it to me. So basically, testing God, hardening our heart, is doubting God's character and his power. It's doubting his goodness and his provision. And the Hebrews and Psalm 95 passages are saying, this is what having a hard heart is. It Testing God, doubting his character and his power, his goodness and his provision. It's the opposite of trusting God. That's what it means to have a hard heart. When we have a hard heart, we're not trusting in God. We're not trusting that his ways are best, or that he will provide for us, or that he and his ways in him lie the greatest pleasure. But the psalm and Hebrews don't just tell us what hardening our hearts is. It also tells us about the consequences of them as well. And uh, if you look back uh, at the, the, the passage, you can see the consequences which happened both in Meribah, but also are still the consequences for hardening our heart today. Look with me at the Hebrew passages at the uh, consequences. Firstly, it uh, causes God to be angry, verse 10 and 11. And also it means that they're never going to enter God's rest, verses 11 and 18. Now, by God's anger, what we need to do here is qualify. What do we mean by that? Well, it's not kind of a dormist kind of rage or kind of a bitterness or a vindictiveness. But rather, it's a natural outrage at something that's clearly wrong. 
Perhaps the closest that we come is when maybe uh, we turn on the TV and we see some poverty somewhere. And you know that feeling you get when you're like, this is wrong. That these people don't have enough food, that is totally wrong. It's a natural injustice. Well, that's what it's the kind of thing it's talking about here, of being outraged at the wrongness of something. And that's what it's saying, that testing God, that is causing God anger because it's doubting who God is. That that is hugely wrong, doubting God's power and character, his provision and goodness. So firstly, hardening our heart, testing God is wrong because it's deeply, deeply wrong and causes God to be angry. But it also results in us not entering God's rest. Now, rest is used in the Bible in a couple of ways. Well, one of the ways is the conventional way that you or I might use it, whereby someone's physically tired and they need rest. But the more common usage of the word rest is that it refers to spiritual rest, that is, being with God. Now, right from the creation story in Genesis, we see that rest is a big deal. God rests after he has created the world. That is, that he enjoys his presence and his creation. And we read of Adam before the fall, before he rebels against God. He, he's in a place of rest with God. That is, he's in a place of perfect relationship and fellowship with God. And throughout the Old Testament, God, time after time, promises his people that he will, send, he will bring them to a land of rest. And, and, and while that is an actual land, he's talking about the promised land, the land of rest, where they can be more fully with him, actually, that's not going to be fully recognised until we die and spend eternity with God. This promise of a place of rest, this, this perfect relationship with God, will only be fil- fulfilled in eternity. And verse 16 tells us that the Israelites who hardened their hearts at Meribah, they never got to enter the rest of God's promised land. And yes, that was a literal place that they didn't get to enter, but we've got to see the serious spiritual metaphor behind this. It's a picture and a warning for us too that actually, if we harden our hearts, it can result in us being separate from God for eternity. Now, you might be thinking, well, crumbs, I I really messed up yesterday, or I slipped up on Tuesday. Does that mean that actually I'm not going to be separate from God for eternity? Well, no, it's not saying that, but it's rather talking about a persistent attitude of hardening our hearts results in this. You know, you, you look at some of the heroes of the faith, and, and they really, really messed up. David was a murderer. Peter denied that Jesus existed. The difference is that when those guys messed up, their response was to repent. That is, they turned to God. They turned and said sorry to God, and they drew close to him, and they trusted in the forgiveness that God provides That's the exact opposite of having a hard heart. They had soft hearts where they turned to God and trusted in him and the forgiveness he provides. Their will and desires were focused on him. Now, if you read the Exodus story, that's a complete contrast to what the Israelites did. Time after time, 
they tested God and hardened their hearts against him. And the result of that was separation from God. So what we need to do is we need to take our focus away from individual actions to examine the state of our hearts. The warning is more against our heart attitude to God rather than any individual wrongdoing that we do. But equally, we're not to be complacent. As I said before, the Israelites go on from Meribah, from the water and the rock incident, and mess up time after time. Yet, this is the incident that the psalmist and Hebrews 3 writer both use as an example of hardening your hearts against God. And while there is a sense in which this, this incident is representative of uh, all of the times that, uh, that the Israelites messed up, all of the times they hardened their hearts against God, I think also there's an element to which it's used because it's so early on in their kind of exodus journey. And I think it's a warning that very often how we start can be how we finish. That it's very easy for a one-off to become a habit. Uh, one example of this in my life is uh, chocolate bars. So uh, Re- when Rianne and I were dating, uh, I-, I lived in Carlisle and Rianne was here in Leeds and often we'd get the train. And I remember the first time I drove it, uh, I can remember at the end of the weekend, I felt pretty sad that the weekend was over. And so as I was getting some petrol, I, I got myself a chocolate bar as well, you know, as a pick-me-up, you know, one-off, because I was feeling a bit sad about it. Well, you can see where this is going, can't you? The next time I drove, you know, I was still sad that I was leaving Rianne behind in uh, Leeds, and so I got another chocolate bar. And one became two, became three, and it became a habit. Now, fortunately for me, someone challenged me about it before it got to the stage where I needed to buy some shares in Cadbury, but it illustrates the point, okay? How you start can be how you finish. It's very easy for individual action to become a habit. So we do need to make sure that we are examining our hearts. We do need to make sure that we're checking our actions because our individual actions can have big consequences. And that's the same with God, that actually acts of hard-heartedness can become our outlook towards God. One act might not seem that much, But actually, one can become two, can become three, and it become a habit. And a habit of hard-heartedness can mean, eventually, that we're separate from God. Serious stuff, eh? So how do we fight this? Third question. How do we fight this? Well, I think there are two uh, ways of doing so which are given through this passage. Firstly, we need to regularly examine our hearts. And secondly, we need to meet with other Christians and be encouraged by them. So firstly, we need to uh, examine our hearts for hard-heartedness or signs that we're becoming hard-hearted. Because it's really clear that we have a choice whether or not we harden our hearts. Uh, Verse 12 makes this really clear, doesn't it? See to it that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart. Verse 12 shows us that we need to make sure that we're giving ourselves a spiritual heart health check. And we need to consider whether there's any hardness slipping into our lives. 
Now, as I was uh, preparing for today, I came across a list by the late great preacher uh, Charles Spurgeon. And he, he had a list of ways that we uh, kind of harden our hearts. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like us to, uh, for me to share that list. And as I do, I'd like for all of us to quietly and prayerfully reflect, can we see any of these signs in our life? So here's the list. Firstly, do we harden our hearts by resolving not to feel in regard to spiritual things? Kind of an emotional numbing of spiritual matters. Perhaps we don't dwell on the majesty of God or the greatness of his grace or the wrongness of our sin. Perhaps we kind of shut ourselves off emotionally from the spiritual realities that we live in. Well, how about through delay? I I, I was going to read my Bible, or I was going to pray, or I was going to talk to someone about that juggle I've been having, but I'll do it later. And then when later comes, we just defer it again. Similarly, how about through distraction, things that Spurgeon says are intended to kill time and prevent thoughts upon the divine thing. Maybe it's our phones or the latest Netflix series. And it's not saying that these aren't good things that we can't enjoy, but But rather, if they get in the way of God, they can be a symptom of hard-heartedness. How about through bad influences? Perhaps being around certain people or in a certain culture that really just promotes values that are contrary to God and the Bible. Or programs that we watch which really just aren't helpful. Maybe that's how we do it. Or how about uh, pretend doubts or foolish criticisms? By that, what Virgin basically means is that lies that we're believing, as in, I know that God says this, this way is best for me. I know that God's way is best for me, but I am going to choose that this other way is best for me instead. Or how about indulging in our favourite sin, something that perhaps been part of our life for a long time and maybe has a comforting familiarity about it? Quite a list, isn't it? I wonder if any of those kind of start to feel a bit familiar. And if they do, well, the solution is to repent, to turn back to God. To turn back to God, say sorry to God, and ask him for his forgiveness. To trust in his forgiveness that he freely gives us through Jesus. And to ask for his power, the Holy Spirit, to come into our lives and to enable us to change and to soften our heart once more. So firstly, we need to examine our hearts and repent and come back to God when we find hard-heartedness. But secondly, we're also to meet with other Christians to encourage them and be encouraged by others. And again, that's really clear from the passage. Uh, Verse 12, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Well, that's got a corporate element to it, hasn't it? And if that wasn't clear enough, then verse 13, encourage one another daily. That is pretty explicit. Uh, And my favourite instruction of all is that we're to encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. Now the thing is, it's always going to be today. So today is today, and then tomorrow when we get to it, it's going to be today. And the day after that, when we eventually get to it, will be today, and so on and so forth. And it's a bit of a humorous way of the writer saying, every day you need to be encouraging other Christians and being encouraged by them. And to me, that shows the importance of church. 
Because you know what? I, I, I can't encourage every single Christian. But I can be part of a group of Christians who encourage me and I can encourage. And this to me points out that if I don't want hard-heartedness, church is vital. That means Sundays are absolutely vital. But not just Sundays, vital and encouraging as they are. But also a mission group, which are the church's small group system, and discipleship triplets, which are one or two other individuals who you are just really open and honest and vulnerable with, who you encourage one another. Because it's in mission groups and it's in discipleship triplets that actually we're able to do and share life together and they're the people who we're able to meet with daily or encourage on a daily basis. So if you're not in a mission group, if you're not in a discipleship triplet, can I urge you to do so? We're called to encourage one another daily. These things are essential to keeping our hearts soft. And if you are in a uh, D-triplet, if you are in a mission group, can I encourage you to give some of your best time to them? Can I encourage you to make those things a priority in your week? Can I encourage you to be committed to them? Because this passage makes it abundantly clear that these things are essential, essential to not hardening our heart, to continuing as Christians. To close with, though, I want to make sure that actually, despite all of this warning and exhortation not to harden our heart, I really would like us not to lose sight of the fact that ultimately it's still all about what God does for us. It's still ultimately all about trusting who God is and what God has done for us through Jesus. You know, starting with the Israelites back in Meribah, they didn't need to go and get water. They didn't need to find water. They just needed to trust in God's character and power and trust that he would provide and rescue them. And in a similar way, well, we don't need to, to earn our way into God's rest, into God's presence. We don't need to earn God's love and acceptance. We get all of that through Jesus through Jesus dying and rising again. And all we need to do is to trust in what God has done for us. That's what we're not hardening our hearts to. Trusting solely in God's character and amazing provision to enable us to be with him now and forevermore. Let the band come up. Shall we pray together? Oh, Father God, thank you for this warning. It is so, so important. And I'm sorry, Jesus, for the times in my life where I've hardened my heart. And I pray, Lord, that all of us, that we would examine our hearts well and be quick to repent and come to you. Thank you so, so much, Jesus, that ultimately you give us forgiveness through Jesus. You give us a relationship through Jesus. And that what we're not hardening our heart to, what we're holding on to, what we're trusting in, is nothing to do with our power, but all to do with your goodness, your character, and your amazing provision through Jesus Christ.
And thank you, Jesus, that you give it the church, that you give it the church to help it to keep on walking with you and trusting with you. I pray, Lord, that we would really value church and in, in, in the softening of our heart that it gives us. I pray that even now that we would just encounter you in church here today. And that as we do, our heart, our will, our desire, our thoughts, our intellect, our intent, that it would all become more and more focused on you and that we would draw closer to you. Oh, Holy Spirit, work in our lives, we pray. Amen.